0: Peter, or, or Second Peter last week, we did First Peter before that, and um, I'm doing Matthew for a very specific reason, which is, you know, I, one of the options before me as your pastor right now would be to do a short series on the craziness in the world right now, and to kind of speak into that, and I think sometimes that's very appropriate to do that, okay, so I'm not against that I know there are churches that are doing that and that's that's great this is no commentary on them it's just God what do you want us to do right now and I felt very clear direction from God and our elders are also in agreement that that is the opposite of what we need to be doing here is that what we need to do is lock eyes with Jesus and that we don't need to go you know scouring the world and the news looking for answers or human solutions to spiritual problems. We also don't need to go searching the scriptures for secret prophecies and secret knowledge that God is somehow hidden from us. You know, God's not hiding his voice. He's speaking as clear as a bell, okay? There is no confusion in God, and he's not hiding his thoughts from you, okay? And what we need to do in this season is just lock eyes with Jesus, like, and to see him looking back at us, to hear his voice, to see Jesus walking the streets and doing the things that he does, the working miracles, to hear him preaching to the multitudes and to us, to see his character, to see his face, to see his life, to understand what he's teaching, and to hear him commissioning us, to see him on the cross, to see him in the manger, to see him risen from the dead, to see all of those things. And Before we know it, we'll have walked right through this season. That's how I feel about it, and I think that's what we need. And so that's what I feel like my job is for you. So if you're going, well, why isn't he talking about this or that? It's on purpose. It's not that I don't think you should be politically engaged. I think you should. But listen, politics and government has become like a false religion. It is put out there like this is the answer to the world's problems the problem is the world's problems are spiritual problems and they have no spiritual solutions that's the church's job and it's very difficult as a Christian to navigate that to be engaged politically right but not bow down to that false idol and it's tiring and I want you to be able to come in here and not be tired and not to be further stressed out and emptied of energy but instead to be given life and for this to be a safe refuge away from the division that's in the world. We are not going to be divided. We just will not be. Okay? And so the way we do that is not to go, we should come to an agreement about politics. No, we should come to an agreement about Jesus. And when we sort that out, there's unity. Okay? So that's the game plan until it's just not anymore. All right? That's really the game plan until Jesus returns. But... That's the initial game, and that's why we're doing Matthew, is because it's just all about Jesus, okay? And that's what we're going to do, okay? So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, but this, I I need to, I want to set this up a little bit, because we're going to look at the genealogy, that part in Matthew that most people sort of skip, right? It's certainly never in the Christmas pageants, right? (laughs) Right? You don't have, like, everyone dressed up as these different people in the genealogy coming down the aisle. You have the people that you, which would be a cool Christmas pageant, wouldn't it? Alan's in agreement, right? We're like, who is that? It's, you know, um, we, we just sort of skipped this, and that's unfortunate because there's actually a lot here. But I need to set up the genealogy a little bit. and I Really, I think that's good for any of the Gospels by going back into the Old Testament for just a minute And to see that there's a lot of history, and God has been orchestrating things to lead up to this moment when Jesus is revealed, okay? So I'm just going to give you two quick scriptures. We could do, or actually three. We could do many more, um, but that would make this sermon way too long as it is, all right? So Genesis 22, 17 through 19. I'll read these, and then we'll put them together says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And he's given this promise to Abraham, okay? And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba, all right? So that's Abraham given this promise by God. God made a covenant with Abraham, and this promise was then passed down to all of his offspring that God was going to multiply his people in the world, okay? Then we have another promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. This one's to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, a kingdom established forever cannot be a kingdom by just a man. It has to be someone else. And this is a messianic prophecy, okay? This is about Jesus coming. Well, they didn't know it was Jesus. His name was Jesus. They knew there was a Messiah coming. And he would take. He would come from David's line, and he would fulfill not only the promise to David, but he will fulfill the promise to Abraham about Abraham's offspring, and he will establish this kingdom, right? And this kingdom would not just be a kingdom that lasted for a time. It would be a kingdom that lasted forever. And this is what the Messiah would do. And then in Malachi, the last word before the Old Testament ends. He says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You should go out leaping like calves from the stall. And then later in John 8, you see Jesus saying, that was me. He uses that same language to refer to himself as the sun, the rising sun. So here we have this and many other scriptures you know Isaiah I've talked about a lot of the messianic prophecies in this in the in the second Peter series you have all these prophecies about the Messiah coming and it's all connected to David and Abraham okay and then Malachi prophesized that the Messiah would come and then what happens we have 400 years give or take of prophetic silence now just try to get your head around for a minute what 400 years is we see that number of 400 years in the Bible, and it's like, well, I have no reference for that. I mean, we, don't, we are amazed when someone now lives to be 100. We're like, wow, we should have some kind of party. You're 100 years old, and you can still see and walk. That's amazing. We're impressed by the smallest things the older we get, right, just like little babies. It's funny how that works. But that's just 100 years, and most of us don't live that long. Do that four times. That's at least four generations, maybe more. Think about that. That's a long time to not have any prophetic voice from God saying, I'm still here. Don't worry. The Messiah is actually going to come. I gave you centuries of promises, and then I gave you one last one to make sure you understood, and then silence for 400 years. That means your parents Your grandparents and your great-grandparents had never personally heard a new word from God. And during this time, it's very interesting, it was not an easy time. You'd think if God was going to be sort of silent, he'd at least make it easy on everybody. But it was not. It had 400 years of difficulty. There's a lot of upheaval Um, And at the end of Old Testament history, Israel has just been released from Babylonian captivity. If you remember when we did Nehemiah and Ezra, that's that story. Then you have Alexander the Great of Greece comes and he conquers Israel, conquers Palestine. Alexander is generally good to them in some ways, allowing them to worship as they chose. But he often relocates Jews to places like Egypt because he wants to populate those places with people loyal to him. Can you imagine living in a place like that where... Somebody could come and say, okay, you're not living here anymore. You're going to live in this other country tomorrow just because I want people there. One of the cool things, maybe they didn't think it was cool, but from, from our perspective it's cool, is Alexander the Great forced the Greek language on everybody. So all of a sudden you had a common language in the whole world. Everybody spoke Greek which set the stage for the gospel to be able to go beyond Israel, okay? As chaotic and difficult as that was, it was necessary for the gospel to go out, which is a cool thing. Then Alexander dies. The Greek Empire started to splinter and fall apart, okay? So it's like, okay, this guy's occupying our country. We don't like being told what to do, but at least he lets us worship, and then it falls apart, and that's not even true anymore, They start to fight amongst themselves, the whole thing falls apart, then Rome comes in and does the same thing, takes over their nation, but Rome is not so nice. Initially, Rome makes concessions, they try to do this pacifism thing where they look, well, we'll let you, you don't have to worship Caesar as God, we'll give you that, and we can coexist, and then they start making more and more noise, and by AD 70, you know that history, the temple is destroyed, and that is really the end. It's a bloody, bloody conflict. It's not just the temple that's destroyed. It's Rome has had enough of Israel and of Christians. So that's 400 years of difficult, hard history of Israel being treated like they are a nothing group of people. that are to be manhandled and abused and passed around. And Jesus is born right in the middle of this kind of Cold War tension between Israel and Rome. The people of God have been in conflict for over 400 years with, with about a 100-year break in the middle. So can you imagine how hungry they would have been for the Messiah to come and how they would have begun to question whether or not he was coming at all? 400 years of not even a promise. 400 years with no, no assurance that he is coming, that God really did speak. How long does it take you or me, to question whether or not God actually spoke to you when things are hard, like 24 hours, right? Did God really tell me he was going to give me a job or help me out or take care of my family or take care of me? Did he really say that? And it's been like three hours. Maybe just 30 minutes, depending on your day. This is 400 years of the only hope you have being constantly questioned by your circumstances so from the perspective of your average jewish citizen this is what i want to get you in the I want to get you in their head of why the beginning of matthew is such a big deal this would have been a terrible terrible time to be alive okay <laughs> you wouldn't have been you would have they would have gone 2020 that's gonna be a piece of cake compared to this The promises of Abraham and David were firmly established in their cultural memory, but at this point, the hope of it would only be a source of frustration. You ever been really depressed and hopeless, and then somebody says, "Um, just remember the promises of God, and they remind you of one, and how it irritates you? (laughs) Because to hear a promise in the middle of hopelessness just feels like more hopelessness. And so these people are beaten down for 400 years. But from God's perspective, the stage was perfectly set for the Messiah to come. You need to see that. From their perspective, the human perspective, this is the worst time to be alive. From God's perspective, who knew what he was exactly what he was doing, he had set everything up, including these horrible, murderous, leaders and alexander the great and rome as a nation was a horrible to people brutal but in that god had set things up so that the gospel could go out to the entire world and not just stay contained and so you'll see this set up so then we have out of that darkness right we have christmas so you can see why this is not just like for us it's just a story we tell sometimes but I love that we're actually doing this before Christmas. We'll do the whole Christmas story before Christmas ever gets here so it won't be contaminated with the twinkling bells at Walmart. <laughs> You'll actually get a sense of the hope that this meant and the promise of it. So let's, now let's with that in perspective, let's read the genealogy. Um, I'm going to start just with the first verse because you can see how that ties in. The first verse, Matthew 1.1, says, "...the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ..." The son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew give him basically three titles? Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. Because of what I just read to you. He is being very clear. Like, Christ at this point was not <clears throat> always a title of Messiah, it just meant the anointed one. And so, if he just said Jesus Christ, somebody might go, Oh, he just means Jesus is special. Might be some confusion. He says, Let me add on a title, son of Abraham. Well, maybe he just means like a descendant of Abraham. He doesn't mean like the son that we kind of have heard about. He says, no, 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 the son of Abraham, the son of David. The only person that can be called Christ, son of Abraham, and son of David would be the Messiah. He's being explicitly clear who he's talking about. We do not get the luxury of defining who Jesus is ourselves. He is far more than a prophet. He was the prophet, yes. He's far more than a king. He is the king. He's far more than a teacher. He is a great, the great teacher. He is the Messiah, period. You can't take him any other way. So Matthew 1, 2 through 17, this is the actual genealogy. I'll read it, and I'll do the best I can <laughs> with the names, all right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. <clears throat> And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nahshon, and Nahshon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. So there's David, right? So we've gone from Abraham to David. This is, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. That's the hardest one. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. That's a real name. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. These names will start to get familiar. And the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Woo! I think I did all right. Okay. Then verse 7, he says, So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right. So what's the deal with genealogies? just a lot of names, but not to them. This was how you said who you were and who you belonged to because it was very important to be able to say, I am, one, a Jew. I'm actually a member of this covenant nation with God, right? And I can prove it by telling you who my daddy and my daddy's daddy all the way up back to somebody that everybody agrees belongs, okay? Okay. This is how they decided who got to come from Babylon back to Israel in Nehemiah, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, both of those books. That's how they knew. They said, here's my genealogy. And they didn't necessarily carry it around in their pockets on their iPhones. Okay? They memorized it. And one of the ways they memorized it, which was, I think, you know, if you notice that he says 14 generations, there's three, gener- three sets of 14. I think it's obviously symbolic. What it's symbolic of is difficult. One of the possibilities is it was customary for genealogies to be arranged in a kind of scheme to make it easy to memorize, like a mnemonic device. Okay? And it really could be that he was just doing three sets of 14 because it made it easy to memorize, because he's left names out. He's left some names out. He doesn't include, it's not like Ancestry.com where you get every single name in every branch of the family included in the genealogy. He doesn't do that. And so it could be that he's just making it easy to memorize. I think probably this has to do with David. David's Hebrew number in gematria, which is this, they would assign a number value to all the Hebrew letters. And David's name was 14, all right? And so it's quite possible that Matthew was making another reference to David in the way he organized the genealogy. We're not really sure, okay? But these genealogies were like an identity card, like your DNA, that's how you say, So what Matthew's doing is he's saying Jesus comes from, he is verifiably from the line of David. And I can trace him back to David and say he is actually the Messiah, and nobody can contest it, right? That's what he's saying. I think that's his main point. But it's also interesting that Matthew includes four women here. That was not customary. That was not normal. You won't find other genealogies from this time with women in them at all, not even wives mentioned. And here he mentions not only four women, but four Gentile women. We have three Gentiles by birth and then one by marriage. Okay, we have Ruth, Tamar, and Rahab were all Gentile women by birth. And Bathsheba was a Jew, but she married a Hittite, so she was treated as a Gentile, okay? four Gentile women, So not only women, but Gentile women, not even from the clan. Isn't that interesting? I think we can conclude a number of things. One is that the charge against the Bible of being anti-women is ridiculous. Because this is, this is Matthew saying that Jesus' identity, as coming from the line of David and Abraham hinges at least on four women. And he does it unapologetically. I think the other thing going on here is you have Mary at the end of the line, who we could say is the fifth woman, the, big, the biggest one. She actually gave birth to Jesus, right? And there could be a charge to say she's not, she wasn't even married when she got pregnant. So how is it that she can be included? How is it that the Messiah could come from, pardon the phrase, just a woman? And so Matthew says, hold on a second. I won't just give you one, I'll give you four. I'll give you four other women that were absolutely central to carrying on the line of the Messiah, and he gives you four i think he is in part defending against that accusation against mary and her legitimacy and therefore jesus's legitimacy as the messiah so matthew's demonstrating that jesus did indeed fulfill the pedigree requirements for the messiah but he's also satisfied the requirement to be able to represent all of humanity not just the powerful and the privileged there are some other people in this list that are not perfect people. This is not a list of heroes, which I also think is interesting. He doesn't just this is not the Hebrews list of martyrs. Okay, where in Hebrews you get that nice long list of like these great heroes of old. This is not that list. If you go and study each one of these people's stories as far as you can read about them, some of them are not great people. David included, David was problematic. David would definitely be canceled today, for sure. And he is the progenitor of the messianic line. Don't you think God could have chosen any group of people to produce Jesus? He could have chosen anybody. Every single one of those people was a sovereign choice by God, and he chose broken people, he chose imperfect people, and he chose... Women who had no power at the time to point to and say, that's my pedigree. I think we can say, God, God, Jesus, looks at us and says, you're my pedigree. Therefore, he represents everyone, not just the rich and powerful. That's an astounding thing that God chose. I mean, if you look at what we'll see over the next few sections of Matthew is who does God choose to reveal the Messiah to? The long-awaited 400-plus years of silence with thousands of years of promises before that. Who does he choose to make his big announcement to? It's not the rich and the powerful. It's a bunch of shepherds on the other side of a hill in the middle of the night. And who does he point to as his pedigree? A bunch of broken people and four Gentile women sort of not the marketing strategy any of us would have chosen. You just need to get on Facebook and really be friends with all the popular people, get some celebrities involved, do some quick videos and commercials, and that's how you get your name out there. Write a book. He doesn't do that. He does it in the most hidden way imaginable, in the most hidden place imaginable. One thing I've learned pastoring people over the years is that everybody at some point discovers that they are woefully inadequate and they don't fit in. Did you know that? You know that nobody fits in? Nobody is a square peg in a square hole. Everybody is a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. And the people who seem like they fit in don't. They're just faking it. We all feel this thing of when are people, people going to figure out that I'm a fraud and I don't know what I'm doing? You sit at work and you wonder, I'm not up to the task. This is too hard. Or you sit at home and you think, when is my wife going to figure out I am clueless? She says, I knew it before I married you or maybe immediately after. Everybody feels this way, and I think it's important for us to not be ashamed of that and to recognize that Jesus came for you. The Hebrew people have been powerless outsiders. Think about this, for hundreds of years they have been kicked around from occupying nation to occupying nation and when their long awaited savior appeared he did not come through a heritage of the rich powerful and the righteous he came through mostly broken flawed and sometimes powerless people and that's who he preached to and what we'll see for the coming weeks months however long it takes we'll see him rebuking the powerful and saying, I didn't come for you, and reaching out to the lowly and the downtrodden and the powerless and saying, I came for you. I'll do a miracle for you, and I'll rebuke you. (laughs) And we'll see that. And the question is, which group do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the target, in the bullseye of Jesus' rebuke, or do you want to be the recipient of his blessing? And part of that is recognizing that the only thing that qualifies you, quote unquote, qualifies you for grace is your sin. The only thing required for admission and for receiving the grace of God is that you be a sinner. And if you say you're without sin, then you must not need grace. I said so that's that's the Jesus we're going to be following, and that's the Jesus that Matthew shows us, even just in his genealogy as he lists. The bona fides of Jesus going back to David is he chooses people that were broken and powerless to be the pedigree of Jesus. So I want to pray for us that this truth about ourselves, that we are in good company, and that the temptation to pretend to be otherwise would be go away and that we will be that me and us here in this room and those of you online will be ministered to by that truth so let's pray holy spirit i ask you and we well, we just thank you first we just want to thank you for choosing us for loving us all of us are broken and downtrodden and powerless at some point even the beautiful people even the talented people don't fit in God, you didn't make us to fit in in the world. You made us to fit in your kingdom. So God, we thank you for that. And God, I pray for all of us that if we, if we feel as though maybe you didn't come for someone as broken as us. God, if we have heard that lie and believed it, God, I pray that you'd break it now. God, you would break that lie and the shame that comes with it. God, that you would lift up the brokenhearted right now, that you would lift up the lowly, you would lift up the powerless, you would lift up the forgotten and the pushed aside. God, I pray for anyone out there online that has been isolated for months and months and months and is beginning to wonder if anybody even knows that they exist. God, I pray that you would speak to them right now and show them that you know that they exist and you love them and you have a plan for them. It has been sorted out in heaven already. So God, I pray that you would be with us and that over the coming weeks and months that you would minister to us and that we would indeed have locked eyes with you and we would stay in step with you by your spirit.